I'm the, also the warm-up uh, myself. So uh, my daughter is at Outside Lands, uh, which uh, I found myself texting her today, making recommendations about how to pace her substance use during the day, which was a curious thing to do, but I felt that it was better to acknowledge and work with the reality rather than stay in denial. I just said, you know, just maybe a little reefer during the day and then try not to start drinking until late afternoon so you don't burn out. I thought that was good advice. You know, I mean, if I don't have anything to pass on to my daughter in, of wisdom, you know, it's like, it, because she, she, she thinks that I think everybody's an alcoholic. Whenever we go to a baseball game, I'm like, those people are alcoholics. I can't think everybody's an alcoholic. I'm like, well, everybody in my life. Never really liked people that weren't alcoholics. They were kind of boring. Remember, like, people who didn't drink? What you thought about them? I know everybody here might not be an alcoholic, but enough of you are. Not, I don't know if you were like me, but you thought, like, you don't drink? Like, what? But then if you found out that they used to drink a lot, then you were like, okay, that's cool. I mean, you stopped, okay. But if they never drank, aren't you kind of suspicious? Like, Anyway. Um, I know some people come here and they think, why don't we just like meditate and be quiet and relax instead of this guy getting me worked up before I meditate? I don't have an answer for that. Um, I'm going to go on a retreat myself. People, uh, you know, often come to my retreats, but I'm going to go tomorrow and uh, spend a week in a cabin alone. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I've discovered, well, uh, and I, I'm not telling you this. I, I don't know why I'm t- I think I think I'm telling you this because it might be relevant to your life. I've noticed that I trend certain uh, emotions, I actually turn them into other emotions. What I mean is that I noticed some years ago that when I was driving to Spirit Rock to give a talk, I would start to feel depressed right about the time I was going through Fairfax, which had nothing to do with Fairfax, but had to do with the fact that I was approaching Spirit Rock. And after it happening several times, I started to realize, oh, I'm anxious, but because my emotional default is depression I, some signal gets through that I'm depressed uh, so this is an interesting thing because I, I've never heard of something like that it may be my own discovery and maybe it's unique to me but I don't believe that anything is unique to me <laughs> uh, I think everybody there's you know if one person has an experience then there's other people who do so, so check that out if you ever notice like like I shouldn't be anxious here I should be sad you know or I shouldn't be angry I should be scared or you know like just to see that like um, we don't always feel what we think we feel so today I was feeling depressed and I realized oh it's because I'm going on retreat and I'm nervous it's kind of scary I mean so what if I've been meditating for 40 years and I've been on probably 50 silent retreats every time I go it's scary because I'm with this really scary person you know, and I don't have any other company. You know. And uh, 
you never know how he's going to be. Sometimes he gets crazy. So, uh, so anyway, so so then I'm kind of double tonight. I'm like, well, I'm teaching, but I'm like actually nervous about tomorrow. But then I've you know, so so don't. Uh, if this is your first time here, like, don't figure this is the way it always is. It might be better next time, or it could be worse. I don't know. So uh, maybe that's enough for a warm up. Um, maybe this a, a slightly smaller. Maybe maybe because you're spread out, it's a little like smaller. But uh, I was thinking maybe the other people are outside lands with my daughter, using intoxicants. Uh, hopefully not. So we'll uh, sit for about thirty minutes, and I'll give instruction. Uh, for about the first half of the sitting and then then leave you to your own devices in silence. So... I think it's helpful to kind of develop if not a, a ritual, at least kind of a a standard way of beginning your periods of meditation. And one way uh, that I think is very helpful is to just start by just really focusing on the way you're sitting. Just kind of feel your body. And also turning off your cell phone, that would be the other thing. Noticing how your body is aligned right now, how it's balanced. If you're sitting in a way that you can be (coughs) still and stable. You can close your eyes or Just sit with your gaze lowered. So there's this shift we make. We're turning inward, and initially that's turning inward to an awareness of body. Just feeling the sensations, all the energy of the body, the life of the body. And then intentionally softening Relaxing the jaw, the eyes.
shoulders, the belly, Now this is a movement from just awareness of the body to an intentional relaxing. And just noticing any points of tightness or tension and seeing if you can release that. And maybe it doesn't release, so it's just awareness that that's what's happening mindfulness meditation isn't fundamentally about controlling our experience but just opening to and bringing greater awareness to our experience And generally we could say that it helps that awareness to be relaxed. So we do make that effort. But it's not a controlling effort. It's really more of a letting go. Moving from awareness of the body to opening to sound. Just the ambient sounds in the room, sound of my voice. Any sounds that come from outside. Noticing too sounds from your own body or from your ears, just the white noise sound. (coughs) Most people hear that if they tune in. So both with sound and with sensations we can focus in two ways. One is a very kind of open way that we might just feel the whole body. Just feel all the different sensations happening. And the other is to zero in on a particular sensation as we will with the breath, just paying attention to that single experience, noticing its qualities, its movement, its changeability. And we can do the same with sound, to just open the mind to the whole array of sounds, like listening to a symphony of 
not picking out an instrument, but just hearing the whole orchestra. Or we can pick out one particular sound to listen to. Either way is a useful way to work. And they both have their kind of functions in our practice. We can experiment with when it's more useful to be open and when it's more useful to focus more narrowly. You might start to focus now on the breath, that particular sensation, sensation of breathing, either feeling the breath at the nostrils, the touch of air, or the belly, the rise and fall. Not that we're pushing away other aspects of experience, but rather that we just bring sensations of breath into the foreground of our attention. natural when we do this that the mind will wander, drift off to thoughts. When you notice the mind wandering, just acknowledge that and gently come back. Bring the attention back to the breath. There's a gentle effort we're making. It's not an effort at control, but more of an encouragement or an inclination of the mind towards the breath. If we try to force the mind or control the mind, It just tends to become more agitated or more tense. In the same way, if we judge the wandering mind, judge the thoughts, we're just creating another problem.
nonetheless engaging in this process can be not just challenging but frustrating. We come face to face with the turmoil of our own minds. By eliminating outside stimulation, distraction, we're forced to see what's going on. We see the restless search for pleasure, entertainment, for distraction. We see the judgments, the fantasies, the plans and regrets, undiluted. No way to hide. So a key aspect of beginning to get comfortable with meditation is an attitude of acceptance. And we could say of forgiveness, accepting and forgiving what arises in our mind. there needs to at the same time be this gentle effort to come back to investigate and become intimate with the breath with the present moment we tend to be in this process of trying to find balance between effort and acceptance, between openness and focus. Because mind and body are not stable there is no stable point of balance, or at least rarely one. And this is our practice. This is the mechanics of our practice. And it's what's revealed 
in that process that becomes our insight.
Right, so um, I'll open it up for questions. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit first. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, the, I guess you know, often when I give guided meditation instructions, there's some sort of theme that emerges. I, I generally just... I have some basic patterns I usually cover, but um, but the theme that I kind of was bringing out in this sitting was the this question about balancing effort, which is really one of the central challenges and sort of uh, just uh, things we have to think about and work with in meditation. Uh, you know, we discover uh, when we first start to practice that we don't have have much control over our own minds, apparently, and and um, and what to do about that then becomes kind of the the challenge of practice. And so this idea that I was kind of bring out of you have to make an effort, you have to have some kind of uh, focal point, kind of some form that you're working within, uh, but at the same time. Uh, you know, first of all, that can't be uh, have a quality of grasping to it because that's just creating more tension. And then, when that, let's say, effort fails, if you want to put it that way, when the mind does wander as it does, then how we re- respond to that? Do we just give up? Oh, forget it! I can't do anything. I'll just space out, or? Do we, you know, start pulling ourselves back, or do we start, you know, getting angry with ourselves, which is an odd concept? Um, uh, and so, this idea, as I said, of kind of balancing a, a, an effort with an acceptance, uh, and behind that acceptance is forgiveness. That is, I'm, I understand that. Uh, I'm not supposed to be able to control my mind. I realize that that's just not possible, so I don't beat myself up for that any more than you, you know, beat up an infant for pooping in their diapers. You know, it's like that's they're not supposed to be able to control that. Not, maybe not the best example, but um, and and so this this kind of balance, as I say, we're making an effort. Not too much effort. We're accepting, but we're not just giving up. Uh, and, and what that means uh, is really that's um, a big area that we have to kind of explore in our practice and see, try to find our own way of negotiating that. And and again, that that because all of this is in flux, there's no point at which we. We get it, like, okay, now I've found that balance. Much more, as I like to say, like a tightrope walker who is always correcting. Our practice is really a process of correcting rather than getting it, you know, f- figuring it out. It's a constant correction. So I just wanted to say that. So now I will open it for questions if there are any, and particularly about practice, but uh, you're. Uh, welcome to ask questions about anything that uh, you think I might be able to talk about. Uh, 
I think they're recording this, so, you know, the masses that will listen to it will want to know what your question was. That's right. They wouldn't just want to hear the response. Um, hi, Kevin. Hello. I was uh, recently on a three-day retreat with you here. Ah, um, very nice. And one of the tips you gave me has been more helpful, um, and I think this sitting was probably one of the, the best sittings I've ever had. Um, but you just mentioned to like name thinking, thinking. Yeah. And then if I want to go a little further, I can even say like judging or planning yeah. or desire, aversion. And that's really helped me like separate myself from the thought or like be the observer of the thought. Um, and yeah. towards the end of the sitting just now, I was um, kind of contemplating that uh, it's like most of the day I'd rather be in my thoughts than be the observer of them. Mm -hmm. And there was some like gloom in there and then at the end it turned into just like really silly and playful. So I kind of feel like I got past the shroud of thinking for just a little bit if that's how you say that. Um, But I thought I found it uh, like a moment of insight like I'd rather be lost in all these thoughts, planning, judging, desire, aversion, than whatever's behind it. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's a curious thing. Yeah, thank you. And uh, um, thank you for mentioning the uh, three-day. I, I was going to say something about that just to say it was, that was a really enjoyable for me and seemed like a really rich few days for those who didn't make it. We, they have a, uh, some rooms upstairs so we had 50 or so people going through the steps more or less uh, but um, for three days uh, and the practice you're describing uh, and certainly uh, is not one that I invented but uh, one I learned very early on and it's uh, that usually called noting or labeling and getting very specific about about uh, pointing at and naming the thoughts is it's a sort of um, it's it's kind of odd in a way you know this idea that I'm sitting here and I'm naming the types of thoughts I'm having it's a it's um, in some way I mean if, if you think about it but then again you just have to note that thought too uh, thinking about noting noting thinking uh, anyway um, but it uh it does have this way of really, first of all, highlighting what your, like Jack Cornfield calls it, your top ten, right? your favorite kind of thoughts. And you start to see how there really aren't that many things that you think about. <laughs> There's a few things, right? Uh, and and kind of, so that, that, which will tie into what I'm going to talk about further in my more formal talk later. Um, but uh, the, your your further point about that certain discomfort that at times, or maybe it's a resistance to kind of stepping out of the thoughts into the observing, and that really points to what I can only call the addictive nature of thinking. You know that we are so. Uh, habituated to just have thoughts going all the time that when we stop it's it feels odd and almost wrong 
like this isn't supposed to happen and there's such a pull back you know uh, that uh, it's it's hard to break you kind of it's 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 an insight into the power of thoughts and you realize why uh, getting to a point of of really shifting to that observing view as um, kind of a primary spot uh, you see how why it t- takes so much work to do that and I'll, and I'll say that going on retreat for me is a time when that gets really strengthened and cultivated and it and becomes then after a week or two of sitting uh, doing silent practice you know just persistently all day um, and into the night um, st- you know, you gradually kind of chip away at that at that uh, stickiness of those thoughts, and you get and and the thing is that ultimately it's it's a much more comfortable place to be just a little more observing than it is to be in the thoughts. And that's, again, part of, the, part of what I'm going to talk about tonight, but that we don't see how uncomfortable it is to be, have the mind spinning all the time. And, uh, and so, just like, uh, again, such a good uh, analogy with, uh, with addiction, that, you know, when you first try to stop your addictive behavior, it really feels uncomfortable and unnatural. It's like wrong. You know, everything in your body and your mind is saying, no, you're not supposed to do this. You know, and, uh, but then, of course, once the addiction is broken, it's like, oh, that, that sense of freedom that comes with it. So, uh, I, when I was out here for those uh, three days, I was... Um, having my meals with the retreat teachers who were up the hill and, and Joseph Goldstein was one of those teachers and he was he was one of my first uh, and one of my most influential teachers uh, back in 1981 is when I first practiced with him and um, it was fun to be able to hang out with him in a casual way and kind of chat and at one point we were talking about something like about this, you know, about the, this quality of, of the stickiness of thoughts. And he turned to me and said, well, you'll appreciate this, that I've taken to talking about clinging as addiction. You know, I was like, okay, you've come over to our team, you know. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hi. Andy, there's someone up front who's got their hand up. Before her, I'm sorry. Sorry, right here. Hi. So I'm pretty early in recovery, and I've found it much easier to be able to release my thoughts through meditation and prayer than my emotions. Uh Those feel like a little much less able to be controlled or released than it is yeah. to clear my thoughts. Hmm. Can you talk about the connection between yeah. thoughts and emotions? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and, and that's a really good 
observation. It's really good that you see that. Because just seeing it is the beginning of being able to do something about it. Uh, If you don't sort of see your emotions or realize that you're getting stuck with them, not much you can do. So, and and you're pointing to something that, uh, and I often talk about kind of this relationship, but, but first of all, just to say that one of the things, you've described it exactly, that that when you notice a thought in the mind, m- many thoughts, if not most, will just kind of like, oh, they'll just stop when you notice them. And I'm not sure why that is. I mean, they might start up again in 30 seconds, but, you know, it kind of like, oh, right, okay, come back to the breath. And it's the, just the nature of thoughts that they have... Um, they, uh, because, to be quite obvious, they're just mental. And the mental, what goes on in the mind is so quick and just comes and goes, just boom, boom, boom. Emotions are have a strong physical component, right? And so when they arise, it's like... Um, the, what it feels like to me is that emotions have this chemical component. I'll just call it that. I don't know. I don't know really any science of that particularly. Uh, but we can say we can kind of feel them in our body, and they need to kind of get flushed out. You know, and and for them to get flushed out, what has to happen is that we have to not feed them. That's kind of the primary thing, and the thing that feeds them is the thoughts. So you have an emotion and then you start thinking about it. So, okay, you let go of the thought, but the emotion, because of its nature, because it lingers in the body, a little while later that thought can easily come back. And it might not even be a verbal thought, you know, it's just a, like an attitude or a scent, like it could just be a feeling of, ew, I, I'm f- I don't want to be feeling this. And you might not even have that thought, you just have the feeling like, oh God, or, and it can be kind of a judgment, I sh- like I shouldn't be feeling this, and all of that stuff is often n- nonverbal or below the level of, of, of verbal thought, but it's still a thought, you know, it's a, an impulse. And um, so it, it, with, with the emotion, the way to cut through that relationship is to stay focused in the body. Because the body doesn't have thoughts. And so if you can, if you stay concentrated, uh, I, mean, I mean like, okay, I'm just going to breathe and feel this feeling. And then when the thought starts to come up, just don't even go with it, right? Just stay with the body, stay with the body. Then it gives the time for the, the I call it the half-life of the, of the emotion in the body. You know, it kind of fades of its own because everything is impermanent. Everything is changing. Now, what makes that difficult is that we don't want to have feelings or we don't like the feelings. And our tendency with unpleasant emotions, which obviously you're not talking about feeling happy, you're talking about an unpleasant emotion, whether it's anxiety, sadness, fear, anger. What's difficult is that our tendency is to 
think that, uh, and this is very instinctual, when there's a painful feeling, it signals to us that there's something wrong. And when there's something wrong, our mind kicks into gear and tries to solve the problem of the thing being wrong. So there's that, (laughs) which we have to let go of. Okay, I'm not going to solve this. There's a feeling. It's okay. So that comes back to acceptance, right? I'm just having a feeling. At the same time, just going into the feeling, there's this pushback. I don't want to feel that. That's why I like to get high. You know, that's why I like to run around. That's why I, what I have my phone for, so I don't have to feel anything. Right? So all of that, again, has to be, we've got to walk through that. You know, just kind of, and, and the, you, can, you can walk through it as long as you understand that's what's happening and this is what I need to do and I'll be okay. I mean, that's the final thing, right? I got to know that there's a process and that when I, once I go through this process, I'll be okay at the end of the line. Not, oh shit, if I pay attention to this, it's going to kill me. It's going to overwhelm me. I'm going to have to go call the suicide prevention hotline. You know, uh, we... There's such a, you know, fear and aversion to to feelings that that it's really hard for us to recognize. Oh, you know, it's temporary. It's just a in the. It's just a feeling. It's not a fact, and I'll be okay. And it, I'm not defective because I'm having it. You know, all that stuff, all those stories that we walk around with. We have to be able to just like, okay, that's just a story. That's just a story. What's really happening? There's this feeling. I don't like it, but it'll, I'm okay. I'll be okay. I just keep. And, and so that's the meditative process or the mindfulness process of it. But we also have, you know, external things. That's why we go to meetings, or we call a sponsor, or we, you know, go to the gym, or you know, take care of ourselves. Because sometimes the emotions are telling us. Often enough, they're telling us we're not taking care of ourselves. You know, oh. You know, I didn't eat today, or I, you know, I need to get get some exercise, or I'm lonely, or you know, whatever it is. But sometimes it's like, okay, this is an emotion. I had, a, you know, a fight with my boss, and this is just here. Okay, you know, uh, I just have to let it, you know, work its way through the body. So, yeah. So, oh, okay. There was someone in the back. Oh, we'll get, we'll get. No, you're right here. We'll just get you, and then we'll take two more. It, oh God, oh, I hate bad questions. Um, how do you, um, how are you, how do you get in touch with that gut instinct, the instinct that is really the right instinct, and then we kind of, or I kind of, you know, can find another way to sabotage that. But the, really, if I, a lot of times, if I listen to that, the inside gut instinct. I wouldn't have had a lot of issues that I've already had. <laughs> so I guess, I don't know if that's a question you yeah. can answer. I well, I, I, first of all, I think it depends where you are in your life, particularly like a person who's new to recovery probably doesn't have a very trustable instinct. Right? That's why you just do what your sponsor says when you first get sober, right? Uh, but but assuming that you've sort of established yourself in recovery to some degree, or whether you know, just that that you have some sense that you can trust that, um, I, you know, 
for me, it's about being quiet, you know. And a lot of times, questions, sort of clarity around things comes when I when I'm meditating, you know, and thinking about it, you know, and then kind of oh, just let that go. But then it's like it's sort of lingering out there in my meditation, and then kind of it's like oh, right. You know, so I have to leave the space for it, which means I have to trust that I do have an instinct, that I have a trustable instinct, and but that it's not about me jumping in and figuring it out. Oh, what should I do? It's let me just pull back and allow my intuition to arise, and I will say that even then I do check with someone else as well. Uh, usually my wife, frankly, you know, she—I don't have a sponsor, so she's, you know, knows me really well, and she, and like she tends to catch me when I'm like, well, I've got this great idea that, I'll, and she's like, yeah, it doesn't really sound like, maybe think about it some more, you know, or she'll be like, that's really great, you know, and and having, I think it's, you know, that's why the role of a sponsor or a good friend kind of is. So, and and I say this with the backing of the Buddha. <laughs> in many teachings where the Buddha says, you know, you need to figure things out for yourself, he also adds in, and you should check with a wise person. So uh, for me, there's that those two things, kind of letting, letting there be space. Like one of the things that I say to people who have to make a decision, and I try to say it to myself too, is when do you need to make that decision? Because Oftentimes we have a decision to make and because it's uncomfortable to not have an answer, to not have that decision made, we jump into making a decision even though there's more time. And, and over time, often, t- you know, often we, the decision either gets made for us or something, you know, clarity comes. And so I think it's really important to leave time and space and, and quiet to, more than anything. So, the woman in the back, oh, you've got the mic? Yes. I have the mic. Oh, Oh, okay. Because she had her hand up, like, way before. She's shaking her head. Oh. All right. Yeah, um, I don't know if this is off the path a little bit, but I've been doing this meditation uh, that has, like, a, a focus to it, you know, like manifesting something that you desire, and I know that's kind of counter-Buddhism to desire, but this is what I'm doing. Uh-huh. Okay. And that's so, why you're in the back row. Pardon me? No. Did what? I said, is that why you're in the back row? I was, yeah, it, was oh, a, it was a joke. Oh, you know. Back row, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but anyhow, uh, I always appreciate your humor. Thank you. Uh, yeah. very, very few oh. do, so, you know. <laughs> So anyway, in its manifestation of desire, um, and then I use a, when my mind drifts off, I use a mantra mm-hmm. to get back to center, to get back to the focus of creating this, uh, this desire. And I guess my question is, and then sometimes, like if I stay in my head, I feel like I get stuck. 
But when I try to use a conscious expansion of my mind and reach more towards the cosmos, and I get out there and I connect with something that I interpret as divine, maybe, and then I can manifest my thoughts in the cosmos with seemingly the divine, and I create these pictures of in my mind of wonderment and manifestation of my desire. And I just so think... So is there a question in here that you're getting at? Yeah, I think the question is, I don't, I don't know what the proper form of meditation is to like stay in the mind or expand. I mean, I get more use out of expanding than staying... Well, I, I don't think there's a proper way to meditate. There are many different ways to meditate. And what you're describing, if it's effective and useful for you, that's great. Um, but since it's not a practice that I either know or teach, I don't feel like I can say much, much about it, except if it works, great. So, I mean, I have a very... Um, I just have my own experience, and so I don't. But but I am very, I, I very much believe that there are just a lot of different paths, and you know, and I've kind of been on this one. So, but it sounds like you're having a good time. So, I hope it's. It sounds like it works for you. Yeah, and and in some way, I think everything sort of merges at some point. You know, I think all the practices kind of merge in a certain way. Uh, but they they might start in different places, but I think the mind tends to just kind of wind up in a similar place from from just different begin, starting points, if that makes sense. Yeah. So did you still have your question over there? Because uh, this will be the last one. I might not have to give a talk tonight if we keep going like this. Thank you, Kevin. So... You mentioned the effort that we put forth in being mindful when we're meditating and sort of bringing our mind back to to the present moment. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about when we, when or how does one sort of um, transition from being, making effort toward mindfulness to abiding in mindfulness and just being in mindfulness because yeah. I'm always trying to do something and right. usually it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really a matter of time. Uh, I, I think primarily it's a matter of time that, that um, as you say, abiding in mindfulness, that's a nice way of describing just kind of, just kind of landing, just kind of being. Uh, I mean, you know, we all have moments like that in our lives organically, you know, a moment of beauty or love or listening to music or watching a sunset, we are just kind of like, oh, wow, you know. Um, But in terms of cultivating that through meditation practice without uh, something to make it kind of make it happen in the moment, um, it's really, it really is the training that's, and it, unless and until there's some transformative experience, 
which again uh, is going to be part of what I was going to talk about later, we're always uh, going to be, to some degree or another, falling back out of that space. But to get into that space generally takes sustained practice, a.k.a. retreats, right? Uh, although, as I say, you know, on a given day or a given period of meditation or a given moment, we might kind of fall into that if, you know, conditions are right, you know. Uh, but in the typical mind that we seem to, most of us seem to have, at least in this uh, period in history, you know, the, the kind of energetic culture we live in, uh, or in the culture of energy. Um, It's kind of hard to get to that place. Nonetheless, the what I was talking about is what you're pointing to. What I was talking about that you alluded to, this uh, acceptance is really, seems to be kind of the key to settling at least in the moment. Uh, even when there is a certain amount of agitation, because uh, what makes the agitation itself uh, unpleasant is our lack of acceptance of it. So if, if we can accept even the busy mind, then there can be this degree of sort of calm bef- behind the storm, if you will. Uh, you know, that you kind of are tuning into. Just like, oh yeah, there's all this stuff, but I'm not bothered by it. Uh, and, that, and that's something that we develop with practice. And it's why it's so important to practice uh, regularly, so that we start to find these little wedges in these little spaces and these ways. Oh, right, that's how I can kind of incline to this. And... Um, and so, yeah, it, it, is, it is that kind of balancing of effort and acceptance that, that just kind of comes with practice as we... It's, it's like finding a, a, a release. I mean, it's a, a ridiculous um, comparison, but... Uh, so I won't make it... Because <laughs> uh, it's a little vulgar. So I'm just going to let's take a little break. We'll take about 10 minutes and then we'll come back. Thanks.
probably people would rather chat with each other than listen to me anymore anyway. So, Andre Ugadala at the PGA Championship. Who knew? Okay, that's the best. That's about it. So, golf. Andre, you know who Andre Ugadala is? Okay. You've heard of the Golden State Warriors. He's one of them. He plays golf. I play golf. I have a problem. It's one of my problems. I watch golf, which is really a problem. It's really sad, really, frankly. But it is a good way to get a nap in the afternoon. Bowling. I used to when I was a kid. I used to watch bowling when I was a kid. Watching poker. Now, that's one I just can't get that. Yeah, you're into that? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Watching the grass grow. Oh, yeah. Uh, they should have copies. I'm sure they do, but I, just, I don't know how it's organized. Oh, well, well, thank you. I, I'm sorry I, I cut the break a little. I mean, it was 10 minutes, but that was maybe we usually do 15, but because the questions went on longer, I wanted to get started. Um, so, so just to acknowledge that you know, I do often at least give a nod to the step of the month. And um, this being August, that would be step eight, which says we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Uh, no, I didn't really want to talk about that. I just wanted to acknowledge that I, that is the step. <laughs> uh, because what I wanted to talk about, and I think this 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 somewhat because I'm going on a retreat tomorrow, and uh, you know it's interesting. I, a lot of my retreats, uh, a lot of the retreats I've done, particularly over the last uh, fifteen or twenty years, are solo retreats where I'm not with a group, and so there's no teacher, and I'll take along some things to read and even some Dharma talks recordings so uh, um, I'm getting some input which uh, I find kind of important uh, to kind of break up the day and I, and I follow the pattern of a of a uh, regular retreat I get up early, I sit for an hour have a meal get a little exercise wash sit, walk, sit, walk have another meal Maybe take a nap, sit, walk, sit, walk, do some study, maybe let's go talk. Just very simple um, and very effective uh, in terms of, well, all the things that uh, we practice for, which is kind of what I wanted to talk about. But but I'm saying all that to say that, that the fact that I'm going on a retreat kind of had me thinking about, you know, why why we do this. Uh, and And... Many times I've been on retreats, 
and ask that question, like, why am I doing this? Uh, you know, after a week or two of just, you know, sitting and walking. Um, what's the point? Uh, and and it's uh, one of the things that tends to happen on retreat is that you do get a little, or maybe a lot, kind of in a sort of an altered state or such a, it's such a, um, un, uh, I wouldn't call it a natural environment, but just such a different environment from our ordinary life that um, you can get kind of disoriented. Like, I'm just here. You know, what's the point of all this? And um, and so that I kind of want to take apart to some extent our practice, how it works. But let me start first by talking about why we practice. Like what what brings us to practice? What do we think we're going to get? That and and obviously uh, you know I I talk a lot about my own experience because uh, that's what I know best (laughs) but uh, I've also of course heard from other people about their own their practices and, and so but when I think about like what drew me to practice it was largely kind of illusions and misunderstandings about how meditation worked and what it was going to do. Um, and I thought, well, I, and you know, I started to practice before I got sober, so I, I sort of had even more diluted ideas about it that it was going to really fix me somehow, that it was going to, uh, you know, I mentioned depression, I was talking about that during the break, that I, you know, I thought meditating would fix depression, that it would... But that it, you know, I really, it really was kind of this vague idea of sort of floating, like levitating. That was kind of, and it was wasn't exactly necessarily that I was really levitating, but that somehow that's how I would live. Now I'd kind of be above it all, right? Nothing would bother me anymore. Uh, you know, it'd be serene, but not just serene, but kind of glowing. You know, and. Um, and happy and, 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 you know, and it all was all mixed up with somehow all my relationships and my career as a musician. Everything would just be glittery and perfect. And, uh, you know, and I blame that on the Beatles because, <laughs> you know, I mean, Strawberry Fields Forever or even, how about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? I mean, come on. You know, uh, this... This, these images, these beautiful images that they sort of uh, created out of their own uh, psychedelic experiences. And, you know, and by the way, oh yeah, that wasn't meditating, but somehow, right, I associated psychedelics with meditation. Uh, that's another story. But so there's this kind of coming in with this misunderstanding, and then, particularly when I started to do vipassana meditation, which is now what, what we call insight meditation now, but uh, they called it vipassana back in the proverbial day. Um, it was so different from that, uh, and it was really difficult. 
and particularly, as I say, not being sober and not having really dealt with any of my stuff, you know, kind of jumping into it. And I, and I jumped in very deep. The first year of practice, I went on a total of four months of silent retreat. Um, and, and, you know, I had this idea on the one hand that it's going to all fix me but I'm like in this grunge of my mind and my body and my knees are burning and I'm like doing walking meditation for an hour and this just bored out of my mind and depressed and just, and then I, you know, but I was convinced, you know, and being raised Catholic, maybe I had a little bit of that penance thing going, you know, like, well, if I suffer enough, then I'll be rewarded. God will, you know, anoint me. Um, but it it really uh, I so so I kind of kept this this uh, illusion that there was going to be this breakthrough this fix that was going to happen if I just kept doing this damn thing which is you know probably why after that three month retreat you know six months later I was following this crazy guru who had nothing to do with Buddhism and and uh, and then wound up homeless, you know, uh, living in my friend's van in Venice Beach, um, which if you're going to be homeless is really one of the better places, I'll say. But, uh, you know, I, I really had no idea what I was doing or why I was doing it. You know, I didn't sort of like understand a process and my expectations were so out of line with reality that um, I eventually lost my faith in the in the practice, which I you know I didn't entirely lose it because behind all of that was this authentic experience. I mean, you can't go on a three month retreat and get not get something out of it. No matter how hard I tried, I still got a lot out of it, and it, and it was underneath in terms of kind of the probably the wiring in my brain and my meditation experience was was forever changed and uh, so I kind of rebuilt my practice uh, after that period of homelessness and kind of and then kind of working my way up I, I had to raise my bottom high enough so that I could hit hit a, an alcoholic bottom uh, I was on such a life bottom that I could you know quitting drinking and drugging when you're living on the street is really not that good so I I needed to get a place to live before I actually could get sober that took a few years so uh, over time I you know I've kind of come to understand this process in a much more practical and I think realistic way So, if we just look at what we do when we're meditating, we can actually deconstruct what we're trying to accomplish. And part of this involves understanding some of the teachings of Buddhism. So, what's the kind of primary teaching of Buddhism? That clinging and craving cause suffering. And that ending that 
cycle of craving and suffering. So when we sit down to follow the breath or to meditate, we bring the attention to some aspect of experience. So we'll just say the breath, since that's the most common one. You're paying attention to the breath. And then, as we've talked about already, it's well known, the mind wanders. And we notice the mind has wandered. And then we come back. But there's a key element in that process that sometimes doesn't get mentioned and can get overlooked. But I'd say it's actually the most important element of that process. And that is seeing what it feels like when the mind wanders. Because when you see what it feels like when the mind wanders, you're seeing what the Buddha taught, which is that when the mind wanders, and where does it wander to? It wanders to craving. (laughs) When it wanders, it's uncomfortable. And if you notice that, you go, well, I don't want to feel this. I'm going to come back to breath. I'm going to let go of this thought and come back to the breath. So this is the the Four Noble Truths, the truth that that there's suffering and that it's caused by this agitation of the mind. And that if we let go of it, that when we come back, that it ends. So that's the first three of the Four Noble Truths. So, what we're So this is one way of describing the process. There's a a couple other ways to look at it, which I want to talk about. But just to to see, okay, what we're trying to do then is to become, I would say, first of all, to, to see this process, which you could call this right view, first part of the Eightfold Path, to see that when my mind wanders... It's, there's an agitation behind it. A couple of people have talked about it, about like, oh yeah, right. And when you come back, and it's not, it's not permanent, but there's a moment of relief. It's, oh, right, okay. So we want to see that, and then we want to become motivated to stay here and not to spin out. So that's the second part of the Eightfold Path, right intention. And then, through repeatedly doing this, we want to train our mind to more naturally and more instinctively default back to being here. To be drawn, in fact, to be more drawn to this present moment than to be drawn to the agitation of the mind that we're so addicted to. Now, most of the time, this process of noticing the mind wandering, the noticing the thought is actually happening in retrospect. That is to say, you only realize that you were thinking a moment after you were thinking. Most of the time, although occasionally you can catch it as it's happening, most of the time, we only realize, oh, I'm I just had that thought. 
I'm thinking, and you might, you might be in the middle of the thought, but, you've already, but what you're noticing is the part that you've already had. And this is important. <laughs> this is why I'm pointing it out. We're not, most of the time our practice is catching the thought, oh, there I'm in the thought, there it is, I've just been having this thought, all right, let me let it go. Let me not let it keep spinning out. Let me not stay in that agitation because I know that this isn't leading anywhere good. I'm going to bring myself back and that's right effort is coming back. Another aspect of the Eightfold Path. Come back, okay. All of this, of course, involves mindfulness. To see any of it, there has to be mindfulness. Another aspect of the Eightfold Path. So we come back and then we wander and then we wander and we keep, you know, uh, we, we keep on this cycle but we're training ourselves in meditation we're training ourselves so that we're more likely to do that in our daily lives as well and in our daily lives of course we're not nearly as likely to catch it because we're busy and we're doing things and there's a lot of stimulation but from time to time especially when there's a lot of agitation either emotional or mental agitation we'll kind of catch ourselves oh wow like I'm just really caught up in this let me just let it go and so we train ourselves in the meditation to be more likely to uh, to notice it and, and, and even primarily to uh, realize that oh you know this, this spinning out thing really doesn't work that well this isn't a really good thing to do so you know, this, uh, this what I'm describing is what we call the, the doorway of suffering. So there are three doorways into uh, letting go. Um, the, the doorway of suffering is the one in which we notice it's painful to be caught up in thinking, in craving, I'll say. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm actually uh, equating thoughts with craving because most thoughts have an element of wanting which might be a negative wanting, but it's a wanting. So we're, we notice the discomfort of it. So that's called dukkha in Pali, the language of early Buddhism. Suffering, discomfort, agitation, stress, whatever you call it. We notice it, and because it's uncomfortable, we're naturally motivated to let it go. So when we notice suffering... We, there's a tendency to let it go. So this is one of the uh, things about addiction that when you're in denial, an aspect of denial is that you don't actually realize how painful it is. You're not really seeing that it's painful. So you're not even, you don't have right view. You, you know, this, is, this is the problem of the human race, actually. That the, it's the starting point of all the problems we have in the world that people think, oh, if I get more money, more power, you know, more control, uh, more pleasure, uh, more stuff, that that's going to bring me happiness. And so every, the whole world is spinning out in this way uh, because they have wrong view. So even the fact that you're here and you appreciate what I'm saying, that you understand what I'm saying, means that you're like ahead of 99.9% of the human race. So, you know, pat yourself on the back. You're, you know, you're, you're at least pointed in the right direction. 
I mean, it's really hard to get to the end of suffering if you're pointed in the wrong direction. You know, you just... It says, I think as Ajahn Chah says, there's the suffering that leads to more suffering, and then there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So I'm hoping that going on a retreat is supposed to be the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Coming to Spirit Rock and meditating for half an hour, that's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And all that other stuff. So the doorway of of dukkha or suffering is the one in which we use this as a stimulation. The other two doorways, one is impermanence, is seeing, well, you know, this thing that I'm thinking about and fantasizing about is just changing anyway, so there's nothing to hold on to. So that's another reason like, to let go, because, in fact, letting go is not... You don't even have to let go because you're actually not holding on. You just think you're holding on. Yeah. So, and that, that's a, a very freeing to just see like, just, it's just uh, flowing along there and just enjoy it as it comes and goes. Um, Joseph Goldstein was talking about this. He gave a talk down here during that retreat to the community. Um, and he, he, he actually said something interesting. He said that if you are, in any moment when you are aware of impermanence, when you are really paying attention to, to the changing nature of experience, you can't cling. That's interesting. So I would just suggest that you take that idea and check it out next time you're meditating. Just, you know, sit and go, okay. Just try to. You can just be aware of how everything is sort of vibrating. If if you feel that, or you can just feel okay. My breath is just moving, and anything just anything you pay attention to is changing. So just pay attention to something and notice its changing nature. Focus on that aspect of it, the fact that it's not solid, and then notice if you can cling. <laughs> Of course, as soon as you think that, you'll be clinging. So, But you might get like a breath in there where you'll be like, right, I can't cling. I checked it out. It was true. Um, but you don't have to believe me. So the third doorway then is the doorway of not self. It's seeing that what I think, because the, the main thing that we actually cling to, although it looks like we're clinging to all this stuff and wanting stuff and getting stuff and controlling stuff and all that, it's actually I. It's, it's the, the biggest thing that we hold on to is this viewpoint of self, this sense of self that I'm here, that I'm running it, that I'm going to get that, that I'm going to own that, I'm going to control that, I'm going to have that experience, I, I, I. (laughs) And when you realize, where is it? Like, what? 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 You try to look for it. There's There's no there there. Thank you, Gertrude Stein. You know, it just, there's, it's just like, it's an idea. It's just a thought. I is just a thought. So when I stop thinking, there's no I. So thinking creates I. Ending thinking, you know, dissolves I. Um, and so, again, there's no, there's no thing to hold on to any other thing. There's no I to hold on. 
that's a little more subtle. So don't ask questions about it because it's like... It, 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 I find the dukkha doorway really effective for addicts. Uh, the impermanence doorway is actually the one that's taught the most in the Vipassana world. Uh, but dukkha really works for me. So you can try those. And you know, if, if the not-self doorway works, that's excellent too. But I just want to say a couple more things about this. So, uh, and, and partly, I, I talk about this because um, because I think that we do tend to meditate without much understanding of of uh, how it works. And you know, clearly, we meditate. A lot of the time we meditate just to get some peace, to get some sense of connection, maybe cultivate qualities of openness, um, and to get insight into our own minds, to see our, see our own uh, mind states and habits. Um, and all of that comes along with this. All of this gets revealed in this process. But the, when I think about how I've changed, and, and I was talking about this last month about spending time with my brothers. I have four older brothers, and, and, and I've kind of been thinking about you know, how I'm kind of made up of a conglomeration of all four of them, and then with a little extra Kevin thrown in. And the extra Kevin is mostly actually the mindfulness is that uh, only one of my brothers has any kind of a regular spiritual practice. Um, and I realized that what's allowed me to be different from them is to a great extent mindfulness of my own behaviors, my own thoughts. Uh, you know, my, I was describing one of my brothers as the, the most negative person in the world. And then my one of my other brothers, my other brother is the, the most judgmental person in the world, and not that I'm judging them at all, but uh, when you're the little brother, you have a tendency to do this. And and I see in them my negativity and my judgmental qualities, but but I see that I have this other layer, right? This reflective layer that kind of doesn't, although I have those tendencies, I just don't buy into them. A hundred percent, you know, I'm able to let go of them uh, in in given situations, and it's because of this process of of going through this and and seeing it, uh, and seeing how things work, developing right view, right intention, right effort, right mindfulness. But what I'm describing is, as I said, mostly happens in retrospect. You know, it mostly happens that I notice that I'm getting judgmental. I notice, oh man, I'm having that that judgmental thought. Let me let it go. Let me be, you know, maybe even like, you know, send loving kindness to that person that I'm judging, or uh, or just let it go and just say like that's just my mind, because uh, um, uh, it's usually people that I'm judging. Uh, um, but I still, but the judgments still come. 
And, and that's okay. I mean, I think that's where most of us can get to and that we can do with this practice. But perhaps, uh, and this is only conjecture, but um, uh, you know, when I've thought about well, what does it mean to become enlightened, you know, perhaps enlightenment is something like the judgments don't come anymore. Right? And, and that reminds me of recovery. And this doesn't happen for everybody in recovery, but a fair number of us, when we, when we hit bottom, when we have a moment of clarity and when we take the first step, at some point, the craving is just removed. So I don't have to, you know, if I go into a bar or a, a store where they're selling alcohol, I don't have to go, oh man, I want to drink. Oh, but I can't drink because I'm an alcoholic. That would be kind of equivalent to what I'm describing, like my judge, judgmental mind, for instance. Instead, I'm just like, oh, that doesn't interest me anymore. And it's actually, when I've heard you know, people describe the enlightened mind, it's something like that. It's not that they, someone has to, you know, oh, I'm being self-centered or, oh, that's lust happening. It's like those things just don't work anymore. They don't come up anymore. There's a term for this in the, in the Buddhist tradition, particularly, I think, the Theravada. It's disenchantment. I really like this term, disenchantment. It implies, first of all, that we are under a spell. And I think that describes addiction very well, that we're really under a spell, right, of our, of our drug or our behavior of choice, that we, we believe, we have this belief in, the, in this world that this is the what we need, this is what we want. And then when that balloon gets popped, that disenchantment, it's like the... Big book saying we recoil as if from a hot flame. It just doesn't, it's like, what? It just doesn't look interesting anymore. So this is one of the stages of, called progress of insight, one of the stages of awakening in Buddhism. When we become not just disenchanted with drugs and alcohol, but we become kind of disenchanted with the world. And it's not that we don't see and appreciate the beauty of the world, but we're not, addicted to it anymore you know we're not addicted to I projecting I we're not addicted to success to uh, to fear to lust to anger to judgment to negativity (laughs) use my brothers and myself as examples none of that gets hold of us anymore you know and I like this for one thing, just because I like it. Like, that sounds good to me. And it also makes sense. I mean, that's one of the things that I really, uh, you know, struggle with or at least uh, resist. Uh, and particularly, I guess, after my early view of practice being so magical that I really try to avoid magical thinking but in you know 
uh, contrast to that. I really want to get practical thinking. Like, how does this work? Because sometimes I hear people talk about enlightenment, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, is that a real thing? And so, for me, I, I, I don't know if this what I'm saying is true because I'm, I'm really this isn't an experience I've had. In case you're thinking that I'm describing my own experience, I'm not. I'm describing what. I believe this is working towards. But it makes sense to me, and it correlates with the language of the suttas, the, the idea of disenchantment. And, and it also, it does correspond to my experience with drugs and alcohol, right? So I feel like I have a kind of corollary experience that, that then kind of go, oh yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. And not, not only that, but it actually seems achievable. It doesn't seem unachievable, this idea of disenchantment. There are moments when it's kind of there, for brief moments, when it's like, you know, I'm really not interested in all this. Um, And for me, it's really helpful, because, you know, I've gone, as I say, I've been doing this practice, Buddhist practice, since 1980, and I've gone through a lot of different kind of place spaces about it you know and and there was time uh, uh, not that long ago in the last 20 years when I really was like okay I'm really going to push for this breakthrough I'm going to have this stream entry is called the first stage of enlightenment but I still didn't have any sense of what that meant and then I kind of hit a wall with that and I went through a period of depression and just like okay that's I, let me just deal with life let me just like you know cope and uh, but I kind of feel like I'm coming back around to maybe getting inspired, which, for what it's worth, really not an issue for you guys to think about. But uh, and I think uh, you know this is part of practice that we go through sort of different relationships to it. Uh, but uh, but I think it's it's it can be helpful to have a vision of what awakening is that you can kind of relate to that doesn't seem like, oh, okay, it's up on that mountain and I don't climb mountains that high anymore. You know, I'm not going to make it. That's okay. And, and, it, and in my mind, you know, it is okay. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, um, you know, there's something we have to achieve in, in spiritual practice. Um, and it's one of the reasons I love the idea that, you know, if I just don't drink and use today, it's been a good day, right? And not uh, always with this idea, well, I'm never enough. You know, I'm not enlightened enough. I'm not spiritual enough. That, you know, that's, uh, that's just another way to create suffering. But, um, but I do think that this is something we can, we can kind of connect with that can maybe be motivating uh, in practice. Uh, and finally I'll say that when this is described when these kind of breakthroughs are described when we kind of break through from just practicing to kind of disenchantment it's not something that we make happen you know it happens as the result of practice uh, and I was talking about this with Joseph and, and he I, don't, not, I didn't have enough time to describe my grand theory of enlightenment to him uh, but I gave him kind of a brief outline and he kind of was like yeah well 
you know, I think you just have to keep practicing, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, uh, what teachers will usually say when you're going off the deep end. Uh, and and kind of, you know, the... Uh, uh, well, you know, there are many different kind of views and approaches to talk about this. Actually, I have a couple more minutes, so I'll, I'll talk about one other aspect of this. So what I'm describing is kind of the gradual path, which is one way of describing Buddhist practice and the Buddhist path and the way to enlightenment. And it's like you're just chipping away at it little by little and working through, and then there's a breakthrough. There's another uh, version of this that's called sudden, uh, uh, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And it kind of flips the whole thing on its head. And it, the, Joseph is particularly uh, enamored of this because he had an experience like this very early. Before he was a serious meditator, he had uh, an awakening experience. And J- Joseph, Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, talks about these things. Where people have spiritual breakthroughs that they can't really understand or integrate or even fulfill. And then they spend years kind of uh, integrating them into their lives. Um, that didn't happen for me, sadly. But uh, maybe, maybe some of you have had experiences like that. So if you're interested in that, you should look at uh, Jack's book, After the Ecstasy of the Laundry. Uh, and, it, and it's kind of pointing to this idea that even when we do have, even if you do have this breakthrough, it's not the end of the path that... Um, to integrate, I mean, uh, you know, I was saying like, okay, you have this disenchantment and everything, all of a sudden you have this different relationship to the world. You know, if you're not really ready for that, or maybe even if you are ready for that, there can be a huge challenge in figuring out, well, I'm still alive. Like, what do I do? Like, how, none, none of this has an allure to me anymore. Like, what's my motivation? How do I, how do, I do this? And, it, and it's really the, the short answer to that, the very short answer, is that we learn to balance the relative and the absolute. We realize, okay, there is this absolute view. There's no self. Everything is empty. Everything, nothing is ultimately satisfying. And I have to pay the rent, and I've got these relationships, and uh, you know, I have to decide what to wear today, and I really should brush my teeth, even though bad breath is empty. You know, uh, so, um, you know, that's, it's, it's learning to kind of balance those things. And it's one of the reasons why the, the gradual path is really uh, an important aspect. Because when we have, if we have that breakthrough and we haven't got that foundation in the relative world, it, it can really kind of blow your mind, just to leave you on a happy note. So uh, we're pretty much out of time. Let's spend a moment. Uh, just of uh, maybe some gratitude and uh, loving kindness. So just to breathe into the body and take a moment of appreciation for yourself that you chose to spend this evening in your spiritual practice. Gratitude.
to your own effort. Appreciation to Spirit Rock for being here for all the years of work and investment that have made this place possible. And then just a reflection on the suffering that's in the world and offering compassion to those who are lost in the illusion, the dream of samsara. First step in our practice is to awaken ourselves and once awake to help the rest of the world to wake up May all beings find the path to awakening. May all beings be free from suffering. didn't mention did you put some flyers out there for my Vajrapani retreat okay so there might be a few spots left for my October retreat Um, so if you're interested in coming on a five day uh, pick one of those up (coughs) otherwise I will be back here next month yes Yes, five days I'll be back the second Friday of September Uh, the Sunday a week from this Sunday, I'll be at the Marin Sangha, which is over in San Rafael. It's on my website, and it's, uh, which is kevingriffin.net. And that'll be right at the end of my retreat. So I'll probably make either a lot more sense or maybe less sense. I don't know. We'll see. So, be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.